All right. What's up, guys? Man, there's a lot of y'all in here tonight. Um, man, like I said, my name is D. Chan. Uh, we have not gotten the chance to meet. I'm so glad I get to be with you guys here on this Tuesday night. It was honestly really windy. Anyone expecting that? I thought a tornado was about to hit today. Uh, I was scared it was gonna hit my house, but I'm glad it did not. Hopefully, no one else's cars or homes got hurt. But if you are currently joining us for the first time, we are currently going through a three-part series called Loving What God Loves. Loving What God Loves. And last week, we got to hear from Trevor as he gave an incredible message. And if you were not here, you can go to our Spotify, our Apple Podcast, or YouTube. We have our sermon recaps there. And last week, Trevor talked about us, how God loves us, and how we can find inherent value not from what we do, not from our social media, not from our status or our works, but we can find our value because God created us and he therefore values us. And I think Trevor sums this up in an incredible verse. In Romans 5.8, it says, but God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so this week, we're in part two, and we get to tackle the topic of loving people. Now, before we start, I have a question for you guys. Who here is or has a sibling? I see a raise of hands. Wow, okay. Who here is an only child? A couple of us, come on, come on, okay. Now, Whether you're a sibling or if you're an only child like myself, I'm sure you have someone in your life that might annoy you. Anybody? Okay, you got an amen. I got heads nodding, affirmation. I like it. And so here's a story about me. I don't have siblings, but I consider one friend uh, a brother for sure. When I moved here from Malaysia in 2009, I met him, and his name was Matt. And so me and Matt grew up doing everything and anything. We could get in trouble, we could mow lawns. Well, he mowed the lawn, I was in the back of the truck chilling. Um, But safe to say, we did everything. We even traveled to Hawaii our sophomore year together. That was a blast. So for our next step for our friendship, we're like, man, I have been to your country, United States, but you haven't been to mine. And so we were like, man, just some high school, no, we're in college, freshman college students were like, dude, We got the cash, we got the funds, let's go to Malaysia. Let's spend not one, two, but three. We spent a whole month in Malaysia together. And if you travel overseas, that's really the only way it's worth it because the rest of the, you're spending four days just in travel. So we get to Malaysia, we step from the plane, and Matt's like, man, where's the fried rice? Where's this, where's that? I'm hooking up. I bring him to even a McDonald's there because our McDonald's be hitting different, right? And so it's fun. We travel, we're visiting all the spots. I'm showing him my hometown. One week goes by, two weeks goes by, three weeks goes by. It's time to go home. And on our plane flight home, um, it was fine. It wasn't great, but it was fine. And we got to St. Louis Lambert Airport and we touched down and... I think at that point, it was probably the tipping point. I don't really remember what we said, um, but I just know that um, as guys do at a young age, we kind of chirp at each other. Um, So we're like, your head's so big or something, whatever it is. (laughs) And usually we can take down the chin, but I think 
you gotta think, we have spent about 720 hours together on this trip. And so it went from chirping to a little bit of a, a little push. And we're in the airport, you know, security is there. And that push becomes a shove. And then next thing I know, uh, I saw a fist coming my way and then a fist going back his way. Um, yeah, we got in a fight in the luggage area at St. Louis Lambert Airport. And my stepdad was just like, what are you two fools doing? Literally, the cops are right there. And we're like, whatever, you know, we're, just gonna, we're not going to apologize because like, guys don't do that. That's false. Um, why did I tell you this story? Just for gigs? Yes. But the point is this, loving people, even if they're your best friend, your family member, your significant other, can be very very hard. Can I get an amen? Yeah, come on. And so tonight, we're going to look at what the Bible says and how we should love people. Because if we look to the world and the wisdom of the world and how we should love people and reciprocate love, the world will tell us this. You love them until you don't feel it anymore. Until you're like, they ain't got nothing for me. That's how you love them. Now, the Bible says something totally counter culture. And so when I was trying to brainstorm how we can love people, what book would look well, I I thought in my head, well, the Old Testament points to the coming of the Messiah, right? The New Testament points to the arrival of the Messiah. And within the New Testament, there are four books. They're called the Gospels. It means the good news. And they highlight the life of the Messiah. So that's where we're going to find ourselves tonight, specifically in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, Pull them out. If not, you can go to the Bible uh, app, go to the events page. We should have all the scriptures on there for you. So while you guys are flipping, give you a little bit of background about the book of John. It is one of the four gospels. It is also the last gospel to be written compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is also most likely the most unique gospel. And the audience was to both the Jews and the Gentiles, so to everybody. And the author was John, the beloved disciple, and he's also one of the sons of Zebedee, known as the sons of thunder. And the book of John's really interesting. If you ever get the chance to look at it or read it, I encourage you to. It's split up into two sections. The book of John from chapter 1 to 12 are the books of signs. So we see Jesus doing his miracles, his sign, his healing, um, changing water into, into wine. And what that does is it's bringing the validity that he is the coming Messiah, that he is here, and that he can do incredible things. Now, the second part is chapters 13 to 22, and these are called the books of glory. So everything that God has instrumented from the Old Testament up till now has led to this moment that God is about to be glorified through the actions of Jesus. And so if you guys want to flip to John 13, if you've never read this passage, guys, I know in church we hear 1 Corinthians 13 a lot for the love chapter, that love is patient and kind. Check out John 13. It is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. It kicks off the books of glory in which every event instituted by God beforehand is for this moment. And it's through this action of Christ when he's about to go on a cross, this is the catalyst. This is the chapter that starts it all. 
And so if we are to love well tonight, if we are to love well to the very end of our lives, we should look at the one who embodies love and is love. So through our time together in John, we're gonna see three incredible life scenarios that Jesus does, and he'll give us three requirements on how to love and what we need to love. So let's dive in. John 13, one, verse two. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And so right here, we start off, John 13 was a time marker, a time marker or a setting, and the setting is that it is about to be the Passover celebration. And if you don't know, the Passover was the time when Jesus died. So we get this insight, but they don't. All this is new to them. Jesus understood that his life and everything he did led to this moment. And he is about to be reunited with the Father. However, reuniting with the Father means this, that he had to be on a Roman cross to pay the price for our sins. And the way that started was with a betrayal by Judas, his very, one of his very best man. He poured three years of his life he showed Judas miracles. He shared bread with this guy. And he's about to be betrayed for some money, as we'll find out later. I want us to imagine that for a moment. Imagine that person in your life that you love and you have poured everything into. And you find out that they are about to betray you. You know in your head, you have foresight, they are about to betray you. How would you react? I would not handle that very well. I would probably have the same scenario with Matt. We would chirp, we would shove, and we would maybe throw a punch. Hopefully I'm, at, I'm 26, turning 27, mature enough to have a conversation, not do that. All that to say, we would not handle that well. Human nature does not handle betrayal well. We value loyalty. And so what does Jesus do? I could imagine he would be prideful if he's about to die and be betrayed my son of God, it is time for you guys to serve me. I've been here for 33 years. I've served you. It is your time. No. What does he do? He washes feet. He does the antithesis of what I would think and what the world says on how to love someone in that heart moment. We continue in John 13, 4, verse 5. It says, so he got up from the table. He took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. So he gets all the goods ready. Then he begins to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. In the middle of a meal, imagine if you're like sitting at home, you got invited to someone's crib, and you're just breaking bread. You're like, let's say it's Thanksgiving dinner with the fam. You're eating turkey, you're, you're cracking that wishbone, whatever it is, in the middle of things, someone just gets off, takes a robe and strips and puts a towel on a wash feet. That's a whole crazy vibe, right? But there's so much symbolism in the robe and in the towel. When Jesus takes off that robe, 
It is symbolized he's not, he's stripping his authority and his power. He, that robe represents every, everything that is royal, everything that has status, everything that has power, everything that our world says, strive for that. And he puts on a towel, which were meant for servants. The towel represents low servants, someone who is lesser, someone who is not in higher status, who didn't have much. So you got to think in that culture, these Jewish men who worship the Messiah, who followed them, had to be astonished because this is not how they grew up. They thought that the coming Messiah was going to come in freedom from Rome. He was some god of war, but instead, Jesus took on the form of a servant and broke every perspective that they knew about. And so the thing about this is, back then, feet got very dirty. If you did not know, they did not have a Nike store. They did not have a New Balance store. They walked in sandals, open-toe sandals. And with that being said, during those times, you're walking, you're doing your trade, you're walking through the three Ds, dirt, Dust and dung droppings, okay? Animal droppings. Safe to say, their feet were very dirty. And foot washing, it wasn't like it was uncommon. It was extremely common. It was just common for the low servant, not someone who's about to be the Messiah for the world. And so I want you guys to imagine this again when we talk about the value of humans. Imagine that the very hands that created the stars, created every star and he flung them into the galaxy, has now taken off that authority and status to serve his disciples. That's powerful. That is counter-cultural. And so he would wash your feet and he would get to the last disciple in this story, Simon Peter. And it says, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Simon Peter was a bold man, and he asked God the question probably everyone was thinking. He's saying, God, you can't be washing my feet. I am nothing but a broken man. I'm a common fisherman. Why would you wash my feet? Why would you wash any of our feet? You could not stoop this low. You're the Messiah. We can be like Peter sometimes. Humans, we, we tend to put one another on pedestals. We tend to put things on pedestals where things aren't supposed to be. We want power. We, we like when people succeed, just not when it's better than us. And Jesus came not only to clean and change Peter's perspective on what loving people is and true love is, but he came to change our perspective. He would answer Peter with one of the most beautiful statements in Scripture. In verse 7, he says, You don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. You don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. You will. And the symbolism there and the foreshadow is that there will be a time. There will be a time when these disciples will be at the foot of the cross as Jesus hangs on them and pays the price for their sins. And there will be a time when the Spirit comes to them and reveals the meaning 
of the cross, reveals the meaning of why Jesus died for him, for us. And it is in that moment, these disciples will finally understand that they worship a crucified Messiah who was not just Lord, but also a humble and obedient servant. That's how we're called to do it. And so he would continue through the washing. He would get back to eating dinner, and he would ask him a question again. He, he asked, do you understand what I am doing? And he would explain it. And so right here when I read this, it was a side note. Isn't it so cool that these disciples who are the closest to Jesus still could not understand some of the things he said? And I think that, that is us sometimes. This is a super side note. I don't want to get too far off. I want to encourage you to read this even if you don't think you can understand it. Don't let the fear of it stop you from reading incredible truth. So in verses 12 to 15, he says, after washing their feet, he puts on his robe again, and he sits down and asks, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And right here, he's saying, do you guys understand? You guys call me teacher, and you call me Lord, you call me Messiah, but here's the reality. Just because I am those things does not mean I will not love and go and humble myself to love you. Don't take love as weakness. Don't take love as out of sentimentality. Jesus loved because he is love. And he shows us how God's authority and power works in our own life as it's revealed in his humbling service. And, and he continues to flip this switch. He's telling us, hey, don't serve other people just because you want to be liked. Don't serve other people because you think they will give you something. Don't serve other people because they'll make you feel better. True service can be gauged by this. If you really want to ask the question, man, am I, am I here to truly love someone and not to serve them? Would you do that action if you weren't getting paid for it? Would you do that action if no one saw you for it? Would you do that if you were going to be forgotten? Are you okay with being forgotten and not seen by God being glorified through your faithfulness and obedience by loving one another? That's a question we all have to ask. And that's such an incredible test. I do that all the time, and I don't always live up. But here's the reality, right? We, in a world that says, man, we need more power, we need more status, Jesus says we need more humility. And that's point one. If you're taking notes, loving people requires humility. And, and the reality of the situation is this. To move the kingdom of God, and I believe this, to really impact the kingdom of God, what we do not need is more powerful Christians. What we do not need is more famous Christians. What we do need is authentic Christians. Christians who understand what Jesus did on the cross for him or her. And it is through this understanding that Jesus has paid the price that that should flow out of you. So we need more authentic Christians. And so dinner continues, and Jesus reveals another shocker to his disciples. He says, now Jesus was deeply troubled, this is verse 21, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. 
The reality of the situation is finally setting in for Christ. He understands that he's about to be betrayed, but he is still human. And that should give us a lot of encouragement because it means that God can relate to you. He is not a God that's just waiting in outer space for you to mess up. He was a God that came down in man, in all of humanity, and felt the same pain you feel, felt the same betrayal that you can feel. And he's saying, I'm here with you. And when he says this, the disciples were shocked. They're like, bro, who's about to betray the Messiah? I mean, I would too. Like, that'd be wild. And so they would ask, Peter would ask the beloved, which was John, the author of this book. And John would ask, Jesus, who's going to betray you? And Jesus says this in verse 26. He responds, it is the one whom I give the bread I dip, not deep, dip in the bowl. And he hands it. To Judas. And in this moment, you would think the other disciples would take action. That they would wrestle John down, I mean, wrestle Judas down and be like, what are you doing? Instead, it says in verse 28 that none of them knew what Jesus meant. And while I was reading this, I was like, well, was it because that they were just all eating bread together and that this was maybe symbolism that one of them might betray him? This is like a warning to stay loyal to Christ. Or they're not here. Verse 29 clarifies it. It says, since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. This brings clarity to the reality that these disciples didn't understand the situation. They just thought Judas was being sent out to go buy provisions for the Passover, that he was about to go and help the poor. But instead, in that moment, only Jesus and only Judas knew what was about to happen. That he was about to go and betray Jesus for 30 shekels. And the crazy thing about this, in this moment, Jesus could have instantly outed Judas. He could have changed that man's whole narrative in that moment but he knew part of being obedient and fulfilling a prophecy that he had to die for the sins of these people. But there's another interesting fact here. Because we can ask the question, well, Jesus, why didn't you like give him a chance? He did. If you recall, it says, it is the one whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl to. To offer food in that time was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of reconciliation. So therefore, Jesus was actually giving Judas this bread an offering of friendship. And the crazy thing is, Judas took the bread, but he didn't accept the friendship. Instead, what was in his mind was the 30 shekels of silver that he was about to be paid to betray Jesus. And the crazy thing is in the Leviticus, it says the value of a man during that time in his age, in Jesus' age, was valued at 50 shekels. So Jesus was betrayed by Judas for way less than what common humans are. The Messiah was betrayed. But even in this moment of betrayal, he offers reconciliation. And it doesn't stop there. He is another of his disciples. He doesn't betray him, but he denies him. Remember the guy named Peter, the one who's bold, who's bad, who's ready to get down? He eventually will deny Jesus. It says, but why can't, I, in verse 37, 38, but why can't I come now, Lord? He asks, I'm ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? 
I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times and deny three times that you even know me. If you, look, if you read later on, Peter would deny it three times. And the rooster crows and he, it sets, the realization sets in what he just did, that he thought he was gonna ride and die for Jesus, but he just denied him. And it's crazy. But the, the incredible thing here is we see the grace. We see the grace and we see love through Old Testament and New Testament. You see the love later on when Jesus resurrects and he goes to Peter and says, do you love me? He asks him this three times. And on those three times, Peter says, I do. It's a sign of repentance. And God is waiting for everyone of us here. So you're looking for a point, point two. Loving people requires perseverance, reconciliation. Because Jesus reconciled us to God, we also are to persevere and reconcile with others. We aren't just supposed to love other people and love the concept of love when it benefits us. True love is a choice each and every time. So I ask you this, can, can you show love in the hard times? Like, will you stay and fight for that person knowing that they are a soul that God loves. Now, I'm not saying if you're in a hard situation, an abusive one, to stay in it. God has wisdom for that. He has people for that to come and join community, but will you love when you don't receive anything? Will you love that family member at dinner, that family member who at your gatherings are a pain, who, who come at you for your faith, who come at you for something? Will you love your friends when they betray you? Will you love your coworkers? Coworkers are some of the hardest people to live, love because you work with them all the time. Will you love when you receive nothing? And will you love even if you were wronged? Will you love even when you were wronged? A pastor I really look up to, he gave a story and he says, he uses this illustration, this verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, at every wedding, he does. And 1 Corinthians 6, 7 just says this. Why not rather suffer wrong? Right, And Paul's writing that, and the gist is it relates to lawsuits, but I think that principle carries to our everyday relationship. Why not rather suffer wrong? If you have a relationship with Jesus in the room, your eternity is saved. You have the fullness of joy to live on earth through his book. So if someone hurts you, someone cuts you off the, the, drive, the runway, whatever, not runway, but cuts off you in the traffic way, or if they mess up your order, or if they bump you, or if they were truly in the wrong, if Jesus suffered the wrong for us, why not rather suffer wrong for everyone else? You could be the first window to someone else to view Jesus. How crazy is that, that God chooses us in this room, broken people who all have our own problems, to be a witness for him? You guys ever think about that? So loving people requires perseverance. It requires humility. And in this last passage, we're gonna see the final requirement here in John 13, 34, 35. It says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We see this passage, this is the core purpose of this whole chapter. And it starts all the way actually in verse one. 
It says, he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. Now he loved them to the very end. So God is saying, man, if you have been loved by me and I have chased you down in your deepest, darkest nights, would you be able to do that for someone else? And we even see this command echoed in John 15, verse 12 and 13. He reiterates the command and he adds something else. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. So point three, loving people requires sacrifice. Loving people requires sacrifice. And in John 15, in that back part of the the scripture, it says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. I think it is in this verse, we see the very essence of what true biblical love is should be and needs to be. That it was not based on feeling. It was not based on status. It was not based on what I can get. It was Jesus sacrificing his life for us because he just truly loves us. If you need an example of love, look at the cross. It is literally in such an ironic way where the world says, Man, I can't wait to put Christ on the cross because this will show nothing. This will bring him down. This will embarrass him. This shows no love. All I see in this is pain and death and hurt. And God does all things for good. And on that cross, we get to see and read about him 2,024 years later as the greatest sign of love. That on that cross is where innocence and perfection met and paid for our sins. And so this is true love. Love requires humility, requires perseverance, it requires sacrifice. And I think this, if we as believers are to make an impact for the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter how many events that we throw. It doesn't matter how much knowledge we know. What matters is, can you show love to people? Sheer biblical love has moved nations and people and won souls for Jesus more than any other man-made event, construct, thought, period. So if you want someone to know Jesus, ask yourself, am I being a witness for Jesus? Am I filling up the same requirements he is? And so, as we conclude, love requires humility, it requires perseverance, and it requires sacrifice. But you can have all these things with the right intentions and you would still miss the mark if you don't know the one who is love. I cannot stress that enough. You could walk in here and say, I love these people, I'm gonna do whatever I want, blah, 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 great, encouraged. But the reality of the situation is is this, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to the Father unless through him. 
And so if you're in here and you don't know Jesus and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I encourage you, read this. Read the Gospel of John. You might think, it's a, it's a Bible. I can't read this. You can. I had the same thoughts. I had the same thoughts when I was 19, 20 in college, and, and I had a fraternity brother share the gospel with me. I was like, there's no way I would understand this. But I kept reading, and I had people who cared for me and came around me and shared with me and showed me love. It was love that drew me to Christ. It wasn't any event. And so if you're in here, I encourage you, read it for yourself. And then make a decision. <laughs> because that decision will be the most important decision of your life. And you might be in here and you might think, man, this is such incredible truth. I love the concept. I love the ideas of Jesus. But there is no way that he died on the cross for me. You don't know what I did. You don't know my past. You don't know my struggles. You don't know my current struggles that I walked in here with five minutes ago. There's no way Jesus died for me on the cross. There's no way. And we see that same truth as he's trying to wash the feet of Peter. A reality sets in that we, that humility is required for both the giver and the receiver. So if you're someone in here who are like, I can give love, but there's no way I can be forgiven of love. And I ask that you would be honest and to humble yourself and to know that when you were still sinners, Christ died for you because he loved you. It's as simple as that. The gospel is this. It is that 2,024 years ago, Jesus came on earth to reconcile us with God. That man and humanity at one point were made in harmony with God, separated by sin, and without a cross, we were doomed for nothing. And Jesus says, you don't, have to do, you don't have to do all this. You don't have to do it by works. It's not about status. It's not about power. It's about me. 